And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Smart Money Circle. My name is Adam Sarhan, and I'm your host. With me today is Justin Deutsch, Portfolio Manager at Way Bossett Research and Management, with approximately $250 million in assets under management. Justin, thank you very much for coming on the show. Good morning, Adam. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. So, Justin, uh, we'd like to begin by asking, can you tell us your story and how you got involved in this business? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, let's see. I'm going to have to date myself here, but um, I started in the business in 1999-2000 uh, at Prudential Securities, uh, where I went into their RIA analyst program. And uh, after a couple of months, I actually got uh, hired away to become a junior analyst slash trader at a hedge fund called Horn Capital. And uh, that's where I met one of my mentors and uh, really started to get involved in the process, the fundamental process, as well as the technical process of learning how stocks move and, and how to make a living, how to make money for myself and for my clients. No, oh, very nice. So you started off with the RA side opposed to being just a normal Series 7 broker. Was that by chance or by choice? Uh, it was really by chance. Um, when I was in college, I had worked for Prudential Securities um, as an intern, and uh, I had a great manager at the time, a gentleman named Abe Bornstein, who told me that if I get all my licenses before uh, I actually graduated college, that I could have a job and dive right into their program. So it seemed like a pretty great way to start off my career and uh, got all my licenses and, and started off on the right foot. I love it. So um, tell me a little, Justin, if you can, more recent history, how you got involved with your current firm, and a little about your investment strategy, if you don't mind. Sure. So uh, Waybosset Research and Management was started in 1999 by a gentleman named Flay Lewis III. And um, after leaving the hedge fund, uh, when did I leave that? Probably about uh, 2007, 2008. Um, I was on the buy side for a little bit, and my job there was, sorry, on the sell side, my job there was to develop investment ideas for uh, mutual funds and hedge funds. And I sort of, sort of specialized in industrial cyclicals, financials, and large cap to medium cap names. And uh, I had struck up a wonderful friendship with Flay. And it turned out that about 30% of his portfolio uh, over the five, six years that I had been working with him uh, were names that I had given him as investment ideas. So it, uh, as time moved on, Flay was looking for somebody to come in and help him run his business. And it was a seemingly natural fit, the fact that we had very similar investment philosophies and he was already uh, invested uh quite heavily in the ideas that I had generated for him. Nice. nice. Yeah. Great so story. <laughs> I've uh, been, been at Waybosser for about six and a half years now. Nice. And then how about um, your investment strategies? You had similar ones. Can you just explain the actual strategy to us? Sure. So we look for uh, a few key criteria for the investments that we make. And uh, number one is the company has to be profitable. Okay. We not only like to see profitable businesses, but we like to see that those earnings are growing in good times and in bad times. <clears throat> so that lays out the foundation for everything that we invest in. Um, number two, we like to have companies that have clean balance sheets. And when I'm talking about clean balance sheets, we like to see that they have very little to no debt. Because if you have no debt, 
then you can't go out of business. And for us, that provides sort of a security blanket or uh, a safety blanket. And I like to sleep well at night. And if I don't have to worry about my businesses going under, then uh, that helps me to sleep very well at night. So nice. um, third is we like to see very, very good uh, capable management teams and management teams that run the business sort of uh, the way that we look at the world in relation to our ethics and our morals. Uh, we like management teams that are very upfront and honest and tend to underpromise and overdeliver. <clears throat> and then as you had meant, we like to see companies that have return on equity and return on capital north of 15%, preferably even higher than that, you know, 20s or above. Um, so return on capital and return on equity, those eventually become our shareholder returns. <clears throat> and then uh, there's two more points that we usually look for, and that is that the company that we're investing in is either the lowest cost provider in the space, okay. so therefore nobody else can come in and ruin the party, or has, as you mentioned, the brand recognition, something like a John Deere or Johnson & Johnson or a New York Times where um, the brand is is the company and nobody can take that away and gives you that sort of margin of safety. Um, and lastly is, uh, just as in real estate where everything is location, 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 we are long-term fundamental value investors. And to us, the most important thing is price, price, price. So if I can pick up these wonderful gems of companies at really reasonable valuations where the market isn't expecting much from them, uh, eventually uh, wonderful things happen to great companies. No, I like that. That's really good. So just to uh, help explain some of these uh, points, if you don't mind. So the first sure. one, profitable earnings. I mean, that makes sense. You look for earnings growth. Do you look at it on quarter, a quarterly basis or annual basis or both? We really try to look on an annual basis and kind of uh, look out, per se, two years, three years, five years of the direction of the company that's going. Um, you know, bad things happen to wonderful businesses. Business is not in a straight line. Earnings are not in a straight line. So we really try not to look at the quarter to quarter, um, as long as sort of the overall trend for the next year, two years, three years is is going higher. That's what we're looking for. So interesting. You look at forward earnings growth projections, not past earnings growth? That's correct. Yes. So, so if a company lost money in the last three years, but it's projected to grow in the next three, that'd be okay? Uh, well, you know, I don't love to go and make an investments in companies that are losing money for three years in a row. That's kind of not our thing. But, you know, bad times do happen. Earnings do slow sometimes for you know, all sorts of reasons, macroeconomic reasons, or, uh, you know, somebody's got a problem with a product, something like that. But we really try to look into the future because I'm buying a company not for what just happened last year or two years before. I'm buying a company for the future earnings right. for the next three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. Right. That makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. clean, next point, clean balance sheets, little to no debt. That's self-explanatory. Capable management teams. How do you, Justin, you know, decide or determine whether or not management team is capable, meets your values, etc.? You know, profitable metrics, it's numbers, balance sheet numbers, debt numbers. 
But how do you actually determine whether or not management is quote unquote capable or up to snuff or however you want to up to par, whatever you want to use? Sure. Well, there's two things. It's quantitative. It's both quantitative and qualitative, right? So it's quantitative in the fact that you can look at the history of the management team and you can see how well that they've done with the company um, by earnings growth over the last couple of years in the past. Um, and you can see, obviously, how well those returns have done for the stock itself and for its shareholders. And then on the other side of it, it's personality. It's meeting these guys. It's sitting in a room with them, seeing what they say, what's their body language, what are they telling investors. When they tell an investor, you know, we're increasing the dividend and business is going to be good for the next, you know, year or two years, do those things actually happen? When they come out with a five-year plan of the direction of the company, do they hit the milestones that they say they're going to do? Um so it's, it's really, do their words correlate to their actual actions, and do they follow through on that? And thankfully, you know, most of the time for the investments that they, we've held for a very long period of time, uh, these guys and girls hit their marks. And the more they hit their marks, the more confidence we have in them. Um, and we tend to stick around for very long periods of time. Got it. Makes sense. And if you're not able to meet the management team in person, would you, would it be okay to say, hey, here are the numbers, here's their performance, and that suffices? Or would you, is it mandatory that you meet the management team before making an investment? We really try to meet them before we make an investment. If for some reason you know they're on the other side of the world, um, I really do spend a lot of time looking uh, and listening to quarterly earnings calls you know, going back for a year, two years, three years, just to kind of get a feel for how they speak, right? what they're saying, did those things that they say really come to fruition, um, and also reading annual reports. We spend a lot of time reading annual reports, and that can give you a really good insight <laughs> into what the CEO has and the CFO has, what vision they have for the actual business. And to have those things over the years happen and if they do happen then that's great then we get really comfortable nice and then the next point return equity return on capital can you just explain both of those to anyone who's not familiar with how how to determine that and why those are important sure so return on equity is a measure of how well a company uses its investments to generate earnings growth and return on capital is a measure of the profitability profitability and the value creating potential of the company as it relates to the amount of capital which is invested by shareholders or debt holders such as myself. So those two are really important to us because um, we are trying to maximize the uh, returns for ourselves and for our shareholders. So the S&P over, you know, let's call it a 100-year period has averaged roughly 10%. So we, as investors, would like to return more than just investing in an index in the S&P 500. So if a company has return on equity, return on capital north of 15%, as I mentioned, preferably north of 20%, that their, you know, returns are beating the S&P by 50%, by 100%. And that's what's needed to gain outsized returns, in our opinion. 
And eventually, if you have higher measures of return on equity and return on capital, those returns become your shareholder returns. Got it. It may not happen every single year, but over long periods of time, those returns become your returns. Understood. And then lowest cost provider in the space, that's pretty self-explanatory. Brand recognition, like a Kleenex, pretty, you know, Google where the word becomes a verb. I get it. Uh, Self-explanatory. Price, price, price. I love that. Instead of location, location, location. Uh, here's the, the not the million, billion, trillion dollar question, whatever number you want. How do you determine value? Well, I mean, value is a very, I would say that's a little difficult of a, a word to determine. <clears throat> so I think it's when you kind of put all those key criteria together at once. And if a company hits all those key criteria and the market is undervaluing based on uh, its multiple and its earning power, then there is some sort of value there. So the markets tend to uh, give you opportunities when there's geopolitical risks or, uh, you know, as we just had some missiles dropped uh, the other week, or there's an economic crisis, or people just panic for whatever reason there is. And Every industry sort of has its multiple range. You know, when I first started in the business, banks were somewhere between, you know, 12 and 16 multiple. Industrials were, you know, uh, 14 to 18 multiple. And then you can go on sort of down the list and you get to the high-tech growth stocks or, you know, 25 to who knows what, 50 multiples. So we're really looking for these companies that have this earning potential where for some reason or another, uh, whether the company just got spun out from something else and the market doesn't realize their earning potential compared to their multiple um, or some extraneous factor is holding them down, that's where the value is created for us, that we can look out and say, hey, you know, the company two years from now is going to earn $10 in earnings, but the market right now is only pricing it as if they're only going to earn $6 in earnings. So when I can... You know, when I can buy a $100 bill for, for $60, uh, you know, that's a worthwhile investment for us. Got it. So you more more or less you look at it on a function of forward earnings, take a multiple yep. that you feel is fair or undervalued. If the stock is currently trading at or below what you consider to be a fair multiple on those future earnings, then you or the, comp, the business in your words, because you don't look at it as stocks, you look at it as you're buying businesses, right? instead of trading That's stocks, correct. then if you want to buy that business, it'll be it'll make sense for you. That's correct. And um, for us, as I mentioned before, there's a price, 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 right? Right. So there's a big difference between risk and volatility. Volatility is just prices going up and down. Okay. So if I understand my business and understand that, A, they're not going out of business because they have no debt, then as long as the price, if, if the price keeps dropping, that's okay with us. That gives me an opportunity to keep buying more and keep buying more and accumulating more of the business, our large share of the business. And eventually, when the market realizes it, then you're going to get those forward returns that are coming. So that's perfect segue to my next question, Justin. How do you handle risk and what, makes, uh, what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? So we don't really think about risk in the sense of, you know, um, 
if the price is going down, that that's an issue for us. We don't mind that. So when we look at risk, risk is about understanding the business, understanding is the company uh, leveraged? Do they have no debt? Do they, uh, are the earnings growing? So as long as you're meeting our criteria, well, the way we try to mitigate risk is owning different businesses that have different business risks. Okay. So we own Johnson & Johnson, for example. Right. We own General Dynamics, for example. We own John Deere, for example. Those three companies are all in three different industries and have three distinct different business risks to them. So that's how we mitigate risk, by owning different types of companies with different business risks in different industries. Understood. And then how about the mistakes you see people make with respect to risk management? Is that more towards, to your point about people just think of risk from entry to exit, and then here's my percent change and I'm out X percent? Whereas I'm not looking yeah, at I it think, from the business? Yeah, I think a lot of the general public and obviously investment professionals look at that uh, all the time. They look at how much they're actually down in investment because they got in at the wrong entry point, and if they're down 10%, 20%, that they have to cut their risk. I don't believe to that philosophy. We don't believe to that philosophy. So, um, you know, obviously nobody likes to see their investment go down by 20 30%, but you have to remember any common stock at any given time, any year, can drop by 50%. Apple's done it. Amazon's done it. Any, any great stock that you could think of that everybody loves at one point or another, or more often than not, a few times in its life has dropped more than 50%. So when you go in understanding that, um, I think you get a little more comfortable with the fact that, yeah, prices can go down, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've made the wrong investment decision. Yeah, it right. just might have meant your entry point wasn't the greatest. Or your time horizon. Understood perfectly. So um, what are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? Oh, boy. Well, there's a, there's a lot in that department. But uh, I think one thing that's really shaped our career is my career is, one, I've learned that not to invest in commodities businesses. Um Sorry, are by commodity, sorry, by commodities, you mean gold, silver, sugar, wheat, and corn? Or do you mean commodities like the actual item they're selling is, is irreplaceable? Like, you know, I, I mean, like businesses like gold miners, oil stocks. Okay. Um, so physical commodities. Know, in other words, yeah. Correct. Sorry, okay. Correct. Got it. Okay. So we made the mistake a few years ago. Uh, we had owned a actual. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Lynn Energy was one of them, mm -hmm. uh, and they became a highly leveraged oil and gas company. And when oil and gas got into a little bit of trouble back in, I think it was 2013, somewhere around there, uh, the company got into a bad way, and it was you know we were forced to leave it. So um, I didn't like being tied to the actual commodity, and one it, unfortunately it was a company that ended up over leveraging themselves. Got it. So in Actually, that's a good segue too. Before we continue with the timeless lessons, what criteria do you use or look at if it's not price going down to exit a position? So there's a few reasons why we'll actually exit the position, and one is that we started to segue into was the fact that we invested in a company that originally had no debt, no leverage to the business, and then all of a sudden decides 
that they possibly want to do a transformative uh, acquisition and lever the company up two, three, four times okay. um, and never done that before. That's one reason for us to exit a position. A second reason just happened to me, I think it was last President's Weekend. We had owned a company for eight years um, and they began to do some acquisitions and started to leverage the balance sheet a little too much for us. Earnings weren't growing as fast as they usually had. And then all of a sudden, on President's Weekend, we got an email, a notice that the CEO, who's been running the business for 19 years, decided to leave out of the blue. Wow. So anytime you get a CEO or a CFO out of the blue on a random day, random weekend leaving with no resignation, no nothing to tell about it, is a huge red flag for us. So we had to exit that position as well. Understood. So... Uh, back, sorry, back to the timeless lesson. So the first one is not to invest in commodity companies. Yep. Because you're at the mercy of the commodity price and things can change and you have, there's just too, you can't, there's, I guess there's no way to control it, right? Well, there, you know, one thing that sort of guides our investment philosophy is we like to make as little decisions as possible. The more decisions you have to make, the more mistakes you're going to make. So, when you're looking at investing in commodities businesses, there's a lot of things that you have to get right. You have to get the cycle right. You have to get the commodity right. And that's too many things, many decisions, too many uh, points that we have to get right in order to actually make money. And for my feeling is that's what raises your risk. Understood. Any other timeless lessons you'd like to share? Um. I think the biggest thing that needs to be understood for most investors and for myself is just being patient. And one of the things that sort of helped me over my career is reading a lot of Warren Buffett books and uh, really took to heart. And it really spoke to me when he talks about making investment decisions and making commitments for your life. You know, this is a very serious business. This is people's money that I manage. It's their retirements. I've gotten to see people, you know, start with very small sums of money and walk away 15 years later, retired and, and, and thankful. Um, and I think when you look at it as an, an investment as a lifetime commitment, I think that really changes your perspective of owning the business and worrying about all these short-term fluctuations and rather not worrying about all that stuff. So one of the best pieces of advice I was able to take from that is just owning it and and committing to that company for hopefully the rest of your life. Oh, that makes very, very good sense. So I guess next question is what are some timeless mistakes you see people make and how do you avoid them? Um, I think the biggest thing that I see is people are constantly worrying about what the quote-unquote stock market is doing and uh, sort of base their investment horizon or what they're doing with their money, whether or not the S&P 500 is up 5%, 10%, or down 10%, 15%, and uh, sort of let their emotions run, dictate what they're doing with their money. I think that's the biggest mistake. So you need to understand that if you have proper liquidity, as in if you have, you know, one to two years worth of living expenses in cash, um, if you live below your means, 
then let your investments run and let them compound for you. And, and anytime the market corrects 5%, 10%, 20%, don't think it's the end of the world. Use that as an opportunity. So instead of running away from it, instead of panicking and selling, that you should know and you should train yourself that those corrections are opportunities and you should actually be adding more money to the situation. Interesting. So even, uh, I guess my next question would be, how do you separate normal healthy corrections and or pullbacks in a bull market and then the beginning of a bear market? And then does your investing strategy change when we're in a bearish environment? So our investment strategy does not change when we're in a bearish environment. That's when we do our work and look for the new opportunities, um, as I'm always looking for opportunities. So when markets are rallying and going up all the time and multiples are expanding, um, that's not our greatest time to do our greatest work. When markets are actually in the correction process, that is when I can do and make a smart decision for myself and for my investors, because that's when the opportunities arise. You know, I know my investors would rather me pay uh, seven times, eight times earnings for a wonderful business if I can when people are panicking, as opposed to paying 15, 16, 17 times for a business. So the corrections are when actually I can do something smart and there's mouth-watering opportunities for myself to take advantage of. Got it. No, that makes sense. And then, so bear markets or corrections, instead of panicking and selling, you're saying you look at those as opportunities to buy because that's when stocks go on sale or businesses correct. go on sale rather instead of stocks. Yes, Got 100% correct. Got it. So I guess it's another mistake, if I hear you correctly, just to read between the lines, is looking at the stock market, looking at you, thinking of internalizing it as you're investing in stocks. That in and of itself is a mistake in your mind. It should be more you're investing in businesses. Yeah, correct. Exactly. You should look at each business separately compared to not compared to what the actual market is doing itself. Correct. And if you understand those businesses, it's kind of like to me, I'm a golf player. So it's kind of like golf. You're on the golf course and not not every part of your game is going to work every single time you step onto that golf course. Right. So every business itself has its own ebbs and flows, its own cycles that it goes through. And some days, some years, they're all working great together. And some years, three out of the four of them are, are, are doing great and, and one's not doing so well. So you just have to understand the nature of each business specifically and just be patient with them. Got it. And then I guess um, one of the last questions here is what is the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? I'd say one of my favorite pieces of advice uh, from my partner, Flay, uh, is that um, you don't, he, he always likes to say to me, you could convince me not to do anything. So meaning we're happy to make the investments and just sit there, sit there for two years, three years, five years, 10 years. So don't have to feel like you always have to be doing something, making a new investment, selling something, buying, selling. Uh, sometimes it's best you make the decision and, and let it work. See yeah. what happens. See how the, how life unfolds, how the business unfolds. So, and that, that's really helped me in just being patient and, um, ends up letting your winners, uh, really win and compound for themselves. Got it. No, that makes good sense. So I guess, Justin, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? 
Uh, best way is through my email. Um, I would love to hear from anybody. So it's uh, jdeutsch at waybossett.com. Perfect. Well, thank you, Justin, so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Adam. I really loved it. Appreciate it. Take care.